Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're going to be uh, in the book of Ephesians tonight, and um, just it, it, it's always hard to jump into a text in the middle or really towards the end of a book, not the way we typically would love to do that because there's so much context that goes into what led up to this point, but we are going to uh, take what we can from this text in terms of your uh, series on relationships, and I'll give you a little bit of background as we get into this, but I wanted to read the text first so we can have something to to launch from. So this is uh, Ephesians 5, 22, and we're going to take it to the end of that section, end of that chapter. So uh, verse 22 says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is, is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The book of Ephesians is, it's a lot. It, there's so much going on in this great book that, it, as I said earlier, it's, it's hard to jump into Ephesians 5 and just kind of pick up. And right immediately I read verse 22, and it's like, <gasps> what are we talking about here? What's going to be happening tonight? Um, you know, I... I over the years in my adult life, I have done some obstacle course racing. I've done um, several Spartan races, some of the longer ones, and, um, you know, long distance running, obstacles, there's obstacles scattered throughout, and you can choose to either negotiate the obstacle, or you can, I mean, you know, it's, it's your own race, you can do what you want, or you can choose to go around <laughs> the obstacle. Uh, you're supposed to do a little penalty if you do, but... If, if you're really in, into this, you don't go around the obstacle. You go over it or through it or under it or whatever it says to do. And um, sometimes in the Bible, we get to things, to certain places that we want to go around. <laughs> and it is, uh, it is a choice that we can make to either go around or go or, or negotiate through it. And this is one of those passages that 
we could either choose to go around or go through and try to understand some of what it is saying to us. There are passages that are going to challenge us no matter where on the spectrum you land in, in, in certain ideas or theology. But the book of Ephesians is full of these types of passages that we have to come to terms with, we have to reconcile with, and we have to figure out what we're doing. And so Paul spends a lot of time early in this book laying a strong foundation about, uh, I loved when I heard you were talking about oneness um, earlier in this series, and, and really that's what the book of Ephesians is. It's this story of God uniting all things to himself, that we are a diverse people in every way, shape, or form, and God has come in through Christ, and he has made the many, he has made them one. And as a part of that, as a, an extension of that, we get to look at relationships through that same lens. And we get to look at specifically marriage through that same lens. And he deals with this last part of Ephesians. He deals with some, some difficult things to understand. And you know, it's easy for me to swoop in as a guest preacher and just kind of drop some bombs and then I can swoop out and you can email the Reverend John um, for all your concerns. Um, and uh, But hopefully tonight will be encouraging for you and not something discouraging and uh, hurtful. There's too much to cover here. I can't say everything about this text. And so some of you may want to hear a lot more, want me to say more about this. Some of you are maybe going to want me to say a lot less. But we're going to look at, at marriage from the 30,000-foot view. We're not going to zoom in too hard and get caught too much in specifics. If you want more of that, come to the marriage treat <laughs> that day. It's, we'll, we'll get into some specifics about communication and you know, how to, how to do things, but I just, you know, hopefully we can get a, a glimpse of what marriage is and maybe what it isn't and have a healthy understanding of marriage. And, and, and really, if we do have a healthy understanding of marriage and really have a healthy understanding of all relationships, it's going to greatly affect who we are individually and also as a people. And so, what I want to do is look at marriage in, in three categories, okay? And I think these will be up here for you. I want to look at the substance of marriage, the sacrifice of marriage, and the solidarity of marriage. From this text, hopefully this, this will all come from this text. But let me just say this. If you're not married, we're going to focus on marriage tonight because that's what this text is addressing. And and what it's it's a powerful picture of Paul's main bigger theme about unity, unifying under Christ. And, and marriage is this picture of God's unity that he gives to us, this picture of Christ's love for the church. We're going to dig into that a little bit more. But if you're not 
married, or if you're not married anymore, or if you want to be married, or if you're dating, divorced, widowed, what, whatever it is, I don't want you to check out and feel like, you know, why did I come tonight? This, this isn't for me. There, there's a lot for all of us here. These, these concepts are, are powerful for us just as human beings that deal with relationships in general. We all deal with relationships. Some of us deal with it in a, in a unique, specific way through marriage, but also if you are single and, and you want to remain single or if you don't want to remain single but you are single, there is, there is, you are a valued piece and part of the body of Christ. And Paul even says in different places, like, it would be better if you were single because there are some specific advantages to that. And so we never want to to exclude anyone when we're going through these texts that may not specifically apply. But the contributions that we all make to this one body, this new body of Christ, this new body, this family, is powerful. And um, I want to just help us to unpack some of this. So when we start thinking about the substance of marriage... Why is Paul talking about marriage at all? Really, if you, if you look at his other letters, it's, it's not really talked about like it is here. I mean, this is kind of his go-to passage for, for marriage. And just to give some background about Ephesians, right? So Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus probably was written to a group of churches in that region. And you would write a letter and the letter would go out and then it would kind of circulate from in this region throughout the churches and people would read it aloud in the church. And, you know, we, we get to this, this section where Paul is helping the church understand how that they are to live and how we are to live. And so those first few chapters are all about this idea about Christ's work and salvation and how he, he, he unites all things and his work of redemption. It's really heavy, thick, thick gospel because we have to know who we are before we know what we can do with who we are. And so we get to these sections and he, he, he actually makes this really big statement at the beginning of chapter five. He says, be imitators of God and walk in love. It's, it's a big one. Be imitators of God, walk in love. And this sets up the stage for our section that we looked at, that we're looking at tonight. He, he begins with these kind of generic statements of how we're to live generally to what that looks like specifically. And he gets to what I think is the core of society, definitely at that time, but also, I would argue now, which is the home, the household. The household. See, most early churches, they met in homes, and, and that was the core of Christianity, where, where Christianity was lived out. This is where you would do, like, our, our, our notion of modern-day church, which, you know, I'm a pastor of a church, and I, I subscribe to what we do, but it's not a one-to-one ratio about what things were like back in the first century. And so he, he's talking to us. He's taking us to the most basic place where Christian life is played out. It's the home. And so Ephesians is just filled with 
long sentences. Paul writes these really, really long sentences, and really verses 18 to 23 is, is one really long sentence. And I'm, I don't have this for you, but I just want you to listen, because this is what precedes where we get to. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, make melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he says then, don't get drunk on wine, but then he says this, he says, be filled with the Spirit. And he talks about what it looks like to be to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to each other, songs, hymns, spiritual songs, singing about God together, giving thanks. And then he says something so interesting in verse 21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this sets the stage for our discussion, this introduction to marriage. And really, for the, for the, the next few sections, because then he deals with other household relationships, which also make us extremely uncomfortable, parents and children, and then slaves and masters. John can talk about those other two relationships at another time. And so Paul starts talking to the participants in marriage. He starts talking to wives and husbands. And when we get this glimpse of God's purpose in marriage, the substance of marriage, and you see it over and over again. Like, what is the foundational element when we think about marriage? He says it in verses 22, 23, 24, 25, 29, 32, right? As to the Lord, as Christ is head of the church, as the church submits to Christ, as Christ loved the church. See, all these instructions on how husbands and wives should view their marriage is centered in one place. It's Christ. Jesus is this foundational, substantive piece to who we are and what we do, and especially in this really intimate relationship of marriage, that there has to be something that grounds us and it's, it's, it's all of this, as to the Lord, Christ, head of the church, submits to Christ, loves Christ as Christ loved the church. This is everything to those who want to be married. If you're not married and you hope to be married, if, you're, if you are married and hope your marriage should be better, if your marriage is great but you really, really, really want it to be great, this has to infiltrate our lives at the deepest level. And, and not just, I mean, this goes into everything that we do. I mean, you, you work day in and day out. If, if it's not as to the Lord, your work, your, your vocation, then, man, it's just going to be misery for the however long you want to do it. And then, you know, you just count the days until you retire so that you can do nothing you know, after that. Unto the Lord, we have purpose, no matter what relationship we're in, no matter what engagement, no matter what institution that we are operating in. So everything Paul has talked about up to this point in the book of Ephesians has headed in this direction, that that God has done this work of uniting all of creation, that we're saved, made new, united in a new family. That's what Ephesians is about. 
And marriage is this beautiful picture of, of oneness, of unity. It's meant to be the picture of what unity should look like in the family, the body, the church. Paul actually says that it is a picture of Christ's love for us, his people, his church. That's the backdrop of marriage. That's why it exists, and that's why it's so important to God. So before we get worked up about, you know, who does what and and what marriage really should look like, who's more important, what about me, what about my needs, we need to understand that, that none of that is the focus of marriage, at least at the foundational level. And so when we start asking the question about marriage, well, what is it, why does it exist, we have to remember these things and ask if marriage is this picture of of Christ's love for the church, then why did Christ come for us? See, if we, if we can understand that, that gives us a better picture, a better idea of what marriage is. Why did Christ come for us? Why did Christ leave heaven to come meet us, to come save us, to come be with us? Not just for a minute, but also then he, he, he comes he, he dies for our sin. He is buried. He is raised from the grave. He ascends to the Father, and then his spirit comes lives, lives in us. Why all this effort and this work? We could maybe filter it down to, to this. He, he came to, to make us better, to change us. Christ came to bring change. That change ultimately is so that we can have a genuine relationship with him and we can have better relationships with one another, real, genuine, loving relationships with one another. And we might say, like, does that mean that marriage means that, um, that, that, that I need to change? Yeah, it, it will mean that. Does that mean he's going to change me or, or, or she's going to try to change me if I get married? Well, Yeah. I've been married, we just celebrated our 23rd year of marriage, uh, my wife and I, and um, man, we are different people than when we got married. I mean, we, we didn't know anything. We were kids. We were, I don't know who let us get married at that age. Uh, I say that a lot. I look at, as we're getting older and our kids are getting older, I'm like, who signed off on this when she was 20? <laughs> I was 22. But man, she, she has changed me. God has done that, but she has done that. I've changed her for, for the better. What we thought was love then doesn't compare to what we think of as love now. And maybe that's, maybe that's not your experience, or maybe that's, you know, you long for that, or, or whatever situation that you're in. If this peace isn't settled at some level in your relationships, your, your marriages, all of it, parenting, working, if Christ isn't the foundation, isn't the substance of what you do, how you live, then it is going to be a very difficult life. Because generally, people in the world around us, we just always think that marriage is is self-centered, something that can get added into my life to just add 
uh, happiness, add romance, add love. You know, there was a gap missing. And, and yes, there's great things that get added. But real marriage brings change. It doesn't just add good things to me. It strips stuff away out of me, things that need to be stripped away. And it helps us to have a deeper understanding of who God is, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully making us more like him. And we might say like, okay, Adam, what about, what about love? Isn't, doesn't love matter in all of this? Well, of course it, it matters. What about attraction? Doesn't attraction matter? Yes, of course attraction matters. But we need help understanding both of those things. I mean, Paul tells husbands three different times in this section, love your wife, love your wife, love your wife. And we have to understand what's going on in first century because if we don't understand what's going on there. We just filter love through our 21st century American or you know, American-ish view, cultural view of what love is. Love for us is usually an emotional reaction, a response, right? I love, I love Coke, I love hamburgers, and I love my wife, right? Like, there's like one word to help us figure out a whole litany of emotional reactions, responses to what we think love is, right? In that culture, wives were seen as a means to an end. That's it. We cannot begin to picture our marital scheme that we have and try to compare it and fit it into what marriage was looking like back then. They didn't marry for love, as we think of it. Wives were there to have babies, to help carry on the family name. They didn't have a voice. They didn't have a place at the table. And I mean literally didn't have a place at the table. In the Greek world, a woman rarely joined the husband and his friends at meals. If she did, it was to sit on a bench at the end of of the table, and she was expected to leave after eating when the conversation began. The husband was the head of the house. What he did, everyone did. What he wanted, everyone wanted. What he believed, everyone believed. That was the culture Paul was writing to. So for us to try to fit one-to-one, you know, round peg, round hole into Paul's description of marriage and our understanding and experience of marriage. It's just almost impossible. So when Paul comes bring in, in this equality language in marriage, husbands, love your wives, love your wives, love your wives, because it was so foreign to their understanding of what marriage was. That was not the relationship. So... <laughs> He brings this equality language to marriage, unity for all people in Christ. I mean, it's earth-shattering. It's so revolutionary. We can look at Galatians 3, right? This famous passage, verse 28, says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Like, for us, we're like, oh, it's great. You know, they had a DEI representative in the church, radical. His his care for the equality that the gospel brings, that the cross brings, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, that alone would have messed people up. And then you mentioned slave or free. 
And then male and female, all those relationships were extremely divided, parsed out, segregated. There was no equality, especially in, in the Jewish mind. And so it was just radical and beautiful, and it turned the whole world upside down. And, and I think it's important to note that Paul wasn't looking to do away with those distinctions, right? He, he's not saying, look, don't, I don't care anymore about gender. I don't care anymore about race. I don't care anymore about culture. No, it's, it, that's not it. He was, what he was wanting to do was do away with the significance that those differences brought. The significance attached to those differences. It created a very, an us versus them dynamic. And once we understand how the gospel breaks down all those barriers, it just changes the way that we live with one another. It, it may not, it may not change the unjust structure because Paul, Paul has some things to deal with in that culture that he's writing a letter to, can't figure it all out, can't end some of the systemic issues that existed, but he is... He, <laughs> He's not trying to change the structure, but he is trying to change the way that we treat one another within the structures that exist, that existed. And so when we bring it back to us and we start thinking about love, yeah, love is necessary, but it's so much deeper than we think. Marriage is a covenant, right? It is a, a choice to love someone the same way that Christ loved the church. Like that's massive, right? For us, love is attraction, it's chemistry, it's electricity, and, and when that electricity fades, we're like, okay, I'm not in love anymore. That was fun, that was love. Now I love something else. But marriage is meant to be this picture of so much more than that, so much more than love. It's a promise, not, not even a promise to love today, it's a promise to love tomorrow. It's a promise of future love. Of course, today love is necessary, but it has to go further than that. It's a promise of love for when the, the butterflies fly away, when the chemistry feels off, when the sights and the sounds and the smells aren't as pleasant anymore. Love stays through those things. It's choice in the same way that Christ chooses to love us in our ugliness and our rebellion. That's the gospel picture, and that's why, that's why marriage is so special in God's eyes. It is this picture of Christ's love for the church, and so it, that, that, that has to be the foundational element, the substance of marriage, but then we have to start looking at what it means to sacrifice in marriage because any and all of that means some form of sacrifice. It, it, it costs Christ a lot to sacrifice himself for his bride, and so as we start thinking about sacrifice, we have to think Understand that marriage means sacrifice. All relationships involve sacrifice, right? Every, every single one. But marriage is a special one. It's a unique one. If everything about marriage points to God's love for us through Christ, then it means both husbands and wives will have to let go of self-focus, self-centered, self-gratifying tendencies. Right? This is where we began in, in this section, right? Verse 22, the big, the big S word. The, right, the temperature in the room just it increases. The big S word, the submission word. 
This one word has been more abused maybe than any other word in the Bible. It's been weaponized inappropriately to abuse, subjugate, and marginalize women throughout history, for sure. And so, this is what happens. It's the problem when we don't properly read Scripture in its, in its context. Because people either want to place too much emphasis on the wife's call to submit, or people want to erase from the Bible. But this doesn't have to be so controversial. When we understand the culture Paul is writing to, when we look at the context with the rest of the letter, Paul is writing to the households of faith, three different groups within that home. And and he's addressing each time the most vulnerable representative of those households. He starts with wives in the husband-wife relationship. Then he moves to, he addresses children first when dealing with children, parents, and then he addresses Slaves in the slave-master relationship. So wives, children, slaves, those would be the three most vulnerable at the time in those households. And so especially with wives and slaves, he's writing to them within their cultural context to see their role as an expression of worship, right? He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission is not a, a voiceless doormat passively obeying everything the husband commands. It's an intentional act of serving God, but but not at the expense of, of her dignity, her safety, her image-bearing identity as a, as a child of God. And then all we have to do is read on because Paul's bigger concern is for the husband. The description's much longer and, and where sacrifice really comes into view. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If the wife's call to submission seems difficult, the command for the husband is, is virtually impossible. As Christ loved the church, what did Christ do to love his bride? He literally died for her, sacrificed everything. The husband is called to give so much in the marriage relationship. Already, we, we talked about how the command to love your wife was, was radical, was so out of the box. But when you add on to that, love as Christ loved the church, <laughs> I mean, he died, he gave himself up, he sacrificed everything, he left all of his self-interest go. That's how a husband must love his wife. If you're a husband in here, you, you can't read that and go like, man, I'm just crushing it. Did it. Done. Never once is the man told to go make sure his wife submits. Why? Because his, his call to submission is equal, if not greater, than, than the wife's call to submit. Paul gives us a framework here for some form of leadership in the home, but he doesn't give us details on how it plays out within different cultures and different times. And, and we get to figure that out in our, in our context, and our cultures. And so we can't erase it from the Bible, the fact that, that it says these words here. But when we just want to hone in on that, and I, so many times I've had to deal with couples as, you know, as a pastor, you deal with a lot of couples and a lot of 
or ideas of what couples should look like, whether they're dating, engaged, married, or someone who wants to date or be engaged. And, you know, this is like where men will tend to get caught up. And even women will get tend to caught up because they're like, oh, I don't want to do that. And men are like, that's all I want you to do. And you're like, okay, we're, we're missing the whole point of Paul's context here. God calls the wife to some level to submit and the husband to love. Both were already happening in that culture. So why would Paul hone on that? Like the wife had no choice but to submit in that culture. But they were doing it both. The husband was loving the wife in an unhealthy way. The wife was submitting to the husband in an unhealthy way. Now because of Christ, everything is transformed. The wife can submit to her husband because she's already submitting to God. And the husband can really love his wife because he's amazed by how much Jesus loves his bride, the church, and he will gladly lay down his life and submit to God for her. How all that works out in its practicality day-to-day, like, it's, it's too much to try to, to figure out in a way, because we just want rules. We want checklists. We want, okay, this is what it looks like, and it's just not the way it works. And it doesn't need to work that way. This doesn't have to be a source of contention for, for marriages because it's a, it's a small piece of what the bigger picture looks like. Because if we just go one step further, to think about what, when I talk about the solidarity of marriage, there's... There's, there's sacrifice, there's also this idea of solidarity, this unity, this oneness, because how can any of this work in the, in, in the first century culture or any culture? How can any of this work? We need the power of God's spirit, and we have to have an understanding of the gospel it's the only way that we can submit to one another. Because don't forget, before this whole thing, Paul tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives us some pictures of how that, that looks in some practical ways. But I don't, I don't like to submit to anything. I don't like to, I want my way. I'm raising three children who all want their way. They don't want to submit to anybody. As humans, we just, we want what we want. We love ourselves. We want to feed the things that are inside of us so that we can feel important, significant, valued, respected, all of it. And unless God comes in and really gives us a picture of himself, we will continue on that path and it will never work. The Holy Spirit's job is to take what we know in our head and make it alive in our heart. And marriage or any relationship will never work unless we know God's love. And so marriage leads to this, this picture of oneness, this, what the whole book of Ephesians was trying to point to. Marriage is this, this concentrated picture of that oneness where one because our main purpose is the same. That's the solidarity I'm talking about. To know God's love, he has to be the main source of love. If your spouse, in your relationship, if your spouse is the main source of love and meaning, then when he or she stops showing love, your world will come crumbling down. 
if your parent and your kids are your main source of, of love and significance and value, then you will do everything in your power to make sure their world is the way that you want it. And then if they drift or move or do something outside of that or they reject, your world comes crumbling down. Any relationship, I mean, if your health is that source of strength and security, anything that we put in that place of God as our source of strength and significance and value and hope, really, whatever that is, becomes our God. Even if they're great things, they kill us in the end. And you can't put that onto your spouse. It's too much for anyone to handle. I love my wife, but she makes a terrible God. She loves me. I make a worse God. And so that is the constant tension battle over the years of going like, man, I love you. Couldn't imagine loving you anymore. I got to love Jesus more because that's the one thing that won't change. That's the one thing that won't, that won't disappoint and won't fade. And that way I can love you better because I love him Because then we'll just, we'll just look for whatever is missing somewhere else. Once that thing starts to, to be gone in this earthly relationship, we'll go find it somewhere else. But if you know God's love and hope, you will love your spouse really well. And Jesus was the perfect, ultimate example of love, right? Even on the cross, he stated unconditionally, he stayed unconditionally. He he. He saw the ugliness of his bride. He saw us at our worst, and he stayed in order to make us one. And so marriage is this beautiful picture of that oneness, of that love. It's that beautiful statement where in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the, the two shall become one flesh. Hold fast to his wife. It's not her just job, his job to just hold fast to her. It's her job to hold fast to him. They hold fast to each other. They, they, they now go from two individuals into this one new creation and is beautiful and is wonderful. It's a quote from Genesis. and they reflect God's image in such a powerful way. So this is, this is marriage. It is, it is a lot. It's a commitment. It is a choice. It's part of the relational dynamics that we exist in in life, and there's, <clears throat> there's value in it for those who are married themselves, for those who are around married people, for the home, how we parent, how we do all these things. And really, in the end, human marriage is this pointer, this, this compass to the real marriage. Because it, the, the real marriage is that marriage of Christ to his church. And if we don't understand that, then we will not be married well. We won't be single well, right? If, if you're single and, and, and all you can ever do is either just think about how much you want to be married, it'll just throw your life out of whack if that becomes the, the goal, the idol. Or 
if you value your singleness so much and you say, I'll never get married, like, that also can become a problem. If you're married and you think only if my spouse would just change, everything would be perfect, it's, it's going to lead to disaster. When we think about the practical application of what it means to be married, here, here's the, the, the foundational element. No matter what stage of life you're in, if we keep Christ at the center, that will be the most powerful weapon to, to engaging in a loving, healthy marriage. And so commitment is a choice, it's a fight, it's a mystery, and it's one that we get to work out as we are living this life. And so if you are, if you are someone in here, and I'm, I'm done, but if you are someone in here who is, who is married, we want you to be encouraged that, that God is is working in through your marriage, that he is doing something. No matter if you've been married 10 days or 10 years or 50 years, God is alive and active in it because he loves marriage. <clears throat> if you're not married and you, you want to be married, keep that in the right perspective, that God is working in your singleness. If you're not married and you don't want to be married, that God is with you and loving you and you have work to do and powerful things to do in the kingdom for his glory. And we are all, the whole point of Ephesians is that we are doing this together. We are being made one because of who Christ is. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.